Well, hello again. Uh, I'm Doug Moss, as I said before, and uh, we're continuing on in our series, uh, a a new way to be human. What does it look like uh, to have these essential characteristics that God gave us, uh, and how has that changed in light of technology that we have today? Uh, And a couple weeks ago, we heard about how we all have the image of God, uh, and, and what does that look like now with artificial intelligence, all those things. And then last week, we learned about these rhythms that we were hardwired to have and, and how technology interacts with those. And now today, I want to talk about this third essential characteristic of being human, which is that we are designed for connection. But what does it mean to try to connect in a digital age. Uh, and so we're going to unpack that. Uh, we're in Genesis 2 this morning, and I'm really like loving this because if you want to follow along, it's on page 2. So really easy to find where we are in the Bible uh, today. We're on page 2. So turn there if you, uh, you want to uh, follow along with us, and we're going to have it here on the screen. But, but let's just look at what it was like when God designed us all the way back at the beginning of creation. So let's see what it says. It says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And I want to focus on on this just real quick, this not good. See, everything up till now, and if you've been here the last two weeks when we looked at Genesis 1, uh, that everything that God designed us, the way he made us to be, it's all been good. Like we figured this this was a good thing. So image of God is good. Uh, Rhythms, uh, hardwired is good. And suddenly we get to this place where he says, but this, there's some loneliness that's not good. And this is what brings us to this third attribute, that we need to be connected to other people. So... What did God do about this not good thing? How do you fix the problem? So we, we see here, uh, so now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. Uh, and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. And so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky and all the wild animals. But for Adam himself, no suitable helper was found. Uh, And this is a moment of of, of sadness in the story, but I'll tell you, it actually is a moment of optimism for me because if if you're like me, this kind of connection, this idea of a suitable helper, this person that's going to, you know, help fulfill you and and give you, you know, life-changing connection, uh, that's hard to come by. Uh, I I don't often see that in my own life. It's been few and far between finding these kinds of connections. And and one of my conclusions from that has been, you know, maybe there's something wrong with me or maybe there's something wrong in the way I'm interacting with people uh, and and to kind of take some of that blame on myself, but it's encouraging to see that right here in the garden before sin entered the world, before things were broken, it wasn't easy for Adam either. Like even when he had God on his side, in his corner, helping him, it took a while. Uh, Steve Howard was sharing this week as we looked at this text that, that I'll just confess, I have always pictured this scene as like Adam standing there and God like miraculously making all the animals kind of like line up and, and pass before him and Adam just kind of goes, giraffe. Dog, platypus, you know, and just, right? But, but Steve Howard pointed out that this might have taken years, 
right? This might've been Adam like going throughout creation, going throughout everything God gave, looking at all the animals and, and like actually searching for this helpmate and not finding it for years. Because uh, this, this text, it doesn't really break down exactly how long each of these moments, moments took. And, and so in this moment where I feel like, like I'm, I'm sometimes struggling or despairing that I'm gonna find someone, it's encouraging to know that Adam struggled too and, uh, and it didn't happen instantly for him as well to find connection. But the story does have a happy ending. So ultimately, uh, the Lord God, you know, sees this. And so then God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is our story this morning. And doesn't it sound great? I mean, this is a marriage text. We get a lot of understanding of marriage from this, but it's also just this picture of this community and the way we were able to connect with people way back when when the world was young, when life was simpler, before technology came along and complicated things, right? Like when when you're naked and eating fruit all day long, you don't need much, you know, technologically. Like they were fine. I mean, this is like, it's a Corona commercial is the picture that we're painting, like, this is what everyone wants, right? Just sitting there, living up the good life. And, uh, and this is the picture. So what happened, right? Like, like what, what went wrong? And, and there's obviously some things we can talk about that. But, but for today, we're wrestling with the technology hinder or help this innate deep connection that we see Adam and Eve had all the way back at the beginning of time. And last week you heard from Dion Garrett about how when it comes to those rhythms of work and rest, technology can in fact be quite disruptive to the way that we are wired. Um, but today for this thing, as we're looking at it, what, what I've come to the conclusion is that when it, when it comes to connecting in a meaningful way, technology enhances whatever connections we already had to begin with. Whatever the trajectory was of the way we connected with others, they're, they're amplified by technology for either good or bad. As a picture of this, check out this clip from the movie Dave when he gets some robot arms to help him out. President, slip your arms in there and the machine will do everything your arms do. I once caught a fish. This big. Right, the technology, it just amplified what he was doing, right? He moves his arms and now the robot arms move and he want, you know, by himself, maybe he could only pick up, you know, like a heavy suitcase, but with the arms, he could pick up a car, right? Like it, it just takes the very actions he was already doing uh, and through technology enhanced uh, and exponentially amplified the actions he was taking. And I think that when it comes to connecting is how technology interacts with us as well. I mean, think about it this way. If I wanted to be a jerk to people, before technology came along, I had to do it on this kind of one-on-one basis, right? Like if I just wanted to like make a bunch of people feel bad, I'd have to go and knock on each and every one of their doors, right? I'd have to like knock and be like, you're ugly. All right, next house. And you know, I'd knock, knock, knock. Your mother's a hamster. And next house. And knock, knock, knock. Your father smells of elderberries, right? Like, and it would take me a really long time to ruin a lot of people's day, right? But, but now with technology, I can ruin a, a hundred people's day with a single tweet, 
I can make thousands of people feel bad by, by judging or condemning them with a single Facebook post, right? The, the act didn't change, the, the intent didn't change, the scope of it is what changed. Or on the positive side, like, like if someone in my social circle is hurting and struggling and needs some resources, uh, it used to be like maybe I, I could circle up like our neighbors and the people that were at our church and that was all I had, but, but now I can leverage technology and I can, I can make, create a GoFundMe page and, and get the word out and suddenly hundreds if not thousands of people can rally to support this friend of mine. Right? We, we can take technology for either good or bad. You know, technology, you know, social media has helped uh, expand so many of the uh, things that I have opportunity to do. But on the other hand, it also reveals when other people are doing things without me uh, and, and people that I thought were friends are, like, are not inviting me to things. Like, I mean, it, 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 can, it can be good, it can be bad. The point is the technology itself merely enhances the trajectory that we were already on when it came to connecting. If we were connecting in meaningful, enriching, positive ways, I think technology helps us expand the blessing of that. But if we're connecting in ways that are not life-giving, technology is going to make it feel even worse. And so what kind of connecting should we be striving for that we can then either leverage technology for or, or, or try to avoid um, some of our own tendencies? And so I, I think if we look at Genesis 2 together, what we just read, I think we're going to see some attributes of ways that we can connect that are recharging life-giving principles that God gave us from the dawn of time that says this is how you connect in ways that are going to be meaningful. And so let's see what, what, we, what we've got. So the first one is this, obligatory. Now this is probably going to be weird and counterintuitive uh, to us. After all, like, we love choice. But this idea that connecting in a way that's recharging and meaningful uh, is saying that we don't get to choose who we connect with. It's chosen for us. Uh, in fact, if we're choosing, then that actually already diminishes the quality of the connecting that we're going to have. Uh, and, and we see that here in the text when, when we see when God finally finds a suitable helper for Adam. It says, And the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and God brought her to the man. God did not make ten women and give Adam a rose and say, I'm going to have you date all these people on camera, and then you tell me which one you've got a connection with, right? And, and the same thing for Eve. Poor Eve, like he's literally the only man on the planet. She'd better like him. They didn't have a choice. This is a relationship that God put in front of them and said, this is it. Like, you got to just make the best of it. And, and I think, again, we're in a capitalist society that loves choice. We love being able to choose things. Uh, and yet, uh, what we see when it comes to deep and meaningful connections is that the ones that are not chosen actually have far more positive impact for us and are far more sustainable. One quick example of this is just think about the military. Uh, I'm a military kid, grew up in that background. And, and when you're in the military, they don't ask you who you want to go through basic training with. Right? Or, or when, when you're sent out to serve in the field, they don't say, who, who would you like to be uh, in a unit with out there? Like, no, they, they tell you, this is your guy, and you just got to figure it out. You got to make it work. You can't complain and say, oh, I, I don't like him. I would, I would rather not do basic training with him. Or you can't say, ah, I don't think she's got, uh, you know, the, the, the fullness of the mission in hand. Can, can I pick somebody else? You know, the, your superior officer says, this is who you got. Make it work. And not only do they make it work, but again, having grown up with these stories, they end up becoming lifelong, meaningful relationships 
you know, the, my, my dad, like, I mean, he's still, like, he goes to, you know, still, I mean, he just finished, I want to get the year right, but 50th reunion of all of his flight school training buddies, like, they still get together. And this is people that were just thrown together in an intense time and then served together in an intense uh, arena over in Vietnam. And, and that now, that those connections are for life. And they didn't get to choose them. And so maybe there's something there. And then the flip side of this is if you don't get to choose what relationships that you're in, maybe you also, if you want a deep, life-giving, recharging connection, maybe you also don't get to choose when you exit those relationships. That that once that relationship has been placed in front of you by God, because it's obligatory, now you don't get to have uh, some sort of a criterion that says, hey, this is no longer uh, something that I want to be in. I'm going to be done with this. And, and we see this at the end of the story, like it's a very interesting ending. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And I've always assumed that the reason they felt no shame was that this story takes place before sin. And so there was nothing gross about any of them and there was nothing wrong with either of them. And so of course they felt no shame because they were fine. I mean, they were naked. Well, they both were ripped and looked like they'd been doing CrossFit for 10 years, right? Like, like there's, nothing, there's nothing they need to be ashamed of. But, but what if that's not actually why they felt no shame? What if it's that they're looking here and saying, we're the only two people, what's she gonna do, leave me? Right? There was literally nothing Adam could do that would make her say, uh, I'm done with you. Because she had no choice. And, 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 if, and if it's that unconditionality that says, there's nothing I could do that would make you leave me. That's a safe place. That's a really healthy place to be, knowing that you are so accepted, you can't go wrong with this person. And this is a hard one to think of an example for, frankly. Like the first one, I could think of an example, military, you don't get to choose. This is a hard one. I don't think I have an unconditional relationship that says there's nothing I need to be ashamed of because there's nothing I could do to make you leave me. And I say that with the fact that I have a wife who swore till death do us part. But then after the wedding, she said, Doug, if I ever catch you picking your nose, this thing is over. Like even my wife, like, like there are certain things that are just, that are too gross for her, that, that, that are shameful, that would make her say, oh, I, I, we couldn't be in this. But here's the thing. I pick my nose all the time. And it doesn't bother me. I don't feel ashamed at myself for picking my nose. Like, I don't do it in front of her because I know there's consequences. But, but there's no shame there. And I think it's because I can't leave myself. I can't say to myself, Doug, you're so gross. I'm done with you. I'm not speaking with you anymore. So so if it's hard to find a picture with other people of this unconditional shamelessness, uh, at least I think I at least have a glimpse of it in this idea that I don't sit around and think, oh, like, oh, you're just gross. Um, I think other people might think I'm gross, which is why I pick my nose privately. But I don't. There's no shame with me. And I think that maybe that's not something to aim for. I think maybe that's just a result of having a relationship that is so safe, so unconditional, that there's nothing you could do that is so gross that you would actually lose it. And I think that's where shamelessness and and being freed of that burden comes in. A third aspect I see in our story today is that a recharging life-giving connection is self-recognizing, meaning that we actually recognize ourselves in the other person. It's this beautiful part of the story. When you look in Genesis, 
And when the man sees Eve, like there's not like this judgment or like, you know, is she good enough, bad enough? What, what you see is this just emotional reaction. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's going to be called woman for she was taken out of man. He sees himself in her. And that's actually part of what makes him like her so much. That she's not foreign or alien like rhinoceroses and giraffes and all these weird things. Like he, he looks at her and he sees himself. And a relationship that gives life and recharges us is going to ultimately have that as its basis as well. And that comes so naturally to me. I see it real clearly. Maybe you do too. Just in my own children. Uh, there's something so amazing and profound about looking at your kids and seeing yourself in them. And, that, and that's physical traits, but it's also like just character traits. Like my, my eight-year-old daughter, she is a goofball. Like she has just come in to her sense of humor in the last year. And it's so great seeing that because I'm like, I remember that. I remember being that age and just thinking stuff was so funny and the world is just so interesting in a kooky way. And, and, when, and when, so when she's being silly, I don't just see someone being silly. I see myself in her. Uh, and, I, and I take joy and delight in her, in her sense of humor, partly because I recognize my own in her. This is a, pa- a factor of a life-giving, recharging connection. And then the fourth one, I think, comes from this as well. That if you're able to recognize yourself in another person, then you're also able to recognize that other people around you, the people we want to be connecting with, are actually people. And I know that probably sounds redundant uh, to say people are people, but they are, right? Like, like the only access I have is to my own thoughts and feelings and emotions. And so it can become easy to just see other people as, as just objects and to not recognize that they themselves have thoughts and feelings and emotions and fears. But that everyone around us is not just some object in our orbit. They're actually a living, breathing person. And how do I know? As Genesis tells us, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. And stop there, right? He formed the physical attributes of a man. But in that moment, before anything else has happened, he is not a human being. He's a statue. He's a golem. He's a robot. He's got the form of a human being, but he doesn't actually have this thing that makes him a living, breathing human being until... After he made the form, then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And this is the core of our nature, that each and every person is a living being created that way by God. They're not just uh, objects in our orbit. They're not just things that are there to help us navigate life. They're actually themselves living, breathing, thinking, dreaming, fearing human beings. So this is the list that I see, and, and I don't know that it's a comprehensive or exhaustive one, but, but it's, just, it's what was there uh, in Genesis 2 as I looked through it this week. And, and even as I sat with this and I thought, I, I don't know if this is really right or helpful, what would help me was to decide to just contrast it with the opposite. Like as I'm struggling with whether these really are uh, recharging ways to do a relationship, let's look at the opposite and see what it is to be draining in our connections with others. And by the way, if you're wondering, this is a picture of me uh, and Ginger from Gilligan's Island, because yes, it's true. I am a robot. But anyway, but let's look at what it looks like when we try to connect with people in ways that are not this recharging picture we see in Genesis 2, but in ways that ultimately drain ourselves and those relationships. And so the first thing is, if it's not obligatory, well, then it's optional. And I think this is where technology maybe has some splaining to do uh, because I think technology has made our relationships far more optional than they ever were. And I'm not talking about social media. I'm talking about the steam engine railroad. 
Yeah, you saw that. You knew that's where that was going, right? See, like, we think technology is just 21st century stuff, but technology's been going on since the beginning. Uh, and before the steam engine, you really had no choice about your community. The people you were connected with is where you were born. You were born, you lived, you married, and you died. I think the number is within a seven-mile radius before the steam engine. Because travel before then was so lengthy, so hard, so expensive, that very few people were able to do it in any meaningful way. But then the steam engine comes along, and suddenly you can travel west, young man. You can go out to places that would have been otherwise too hard, too difficult. Uh, And so suddenly technology makes so many of our relationships optional. And again, you see that, especially now with social media, that, that people ask me if they can be my friend on Facebook, and I have power. And I can decide whether or not to accept that friend request. Like, I'm choosing uh, who is uh, going to be in my network as opposed to taking it and saying, hey, God, whoever you put in my life is clearly someone that you mean for me to be connecting with in some meaningful way. Like, that's how it used to be. You know, when people come to this church, like, there's not a, a question for me anymore as to, like, oh, is this someone I should be connecting with? Yes, because you're here. And God put you here. God led you here. And, and so there's no choice for me on this matter because I'm, this is my community too and it's yours. And so if you're here, then that means God has chosen you for me. This is not something I'm choosing for myself. Which then if that's true, leads us to this idea that, that how many of our relationships are conditional and because of that, they're never going to leave this shallow superficial level of connecting. And here's why. If there's one bad thing from technology I'm going to share, I'm going to tell it to you right now. If there's one bad thing, it's this. The unfollow button on Facebook. That's just bad. It's not helpful. Because maybe you've let someone be in your friend circle, but now like, they're posting stuff and you don't like it, you disagree with it, it makes you mad. Uh, and, and guess what? You don't even have to say anything to them about it. You don't have to push through it with them. You can just simply unfollow And I'll confess, I've done it. I've got a friend of my mom's, and thankfully she doesn't watch these, so I can just tell you, she loves quilting too much. Like 10 posts a day, pictures of quilts. And they were fine for a while, but there came a point where like, I couldn't see anything else. It was just quilts all day long. And so I did, I unfollowed her. And, and it gives us so much power, but ultimately, you know, even something light like a quilt, but, but even heavier things, if we can just unfollow at a moment, then there are things that God could have done in us and through us in that relationship. Ways that he said, hey, I actually wanted you to mature a little bit. I wanted you to develop an interest in quilting, but you unfollowed. Or there's something where God's saying, this was a chance for you to push through something hard with somebody, but it was easier for you to unfollow. And then ultimately, because we know that we can unfollow anyone that is bothering us or driving us crazy, we also know that they can do the same to us. And every one of our relationships ultimately becomes a perpetual audition. Trying to prove that you're good enough, take pictures on Instagram that are peppy enough, uh, making people want to still be in community with you because you know that their acceptance of you is conditional as well. And that's going to ultimately always keep our relationships shallow if we can never count on this. And one of the reasons we can't count on this is because of this problem. See, if we don't recognize ourselves and someone as a way to empathize and connect with them, then what ends up happening is we recognize ourselves in them in a way that demonizes. And, and let me unpack this a little bit. And I, I've shared with you guys, so I, I've gone through counseling and 
One of the interesting truisms of counseling uh, is, is they know that the things you dislike about other people are very often the things you dislike about yourself. And so again, just to be real, I, I know I struggle with procrastination and, and that you know, sometimes I, just, I don't do things as promptly as I'd like. I'm not as ahead of the game as I'd like, you know, or I should have done something with a week in advance and I, I leave it till the last minute. Uh, and so as a result, it, I, I see how that's affected my relationships with others. See, if someone is completely different from me, I actually don't get upset with them very easily. Like, I actually have a really easy time comparatively engaging with people who don't believe in God. Uh, who don't have that kind of relationship, aren't seeking him out because I'm just like, ah, oh, I get it. I can see where you are. It's no big, you know, no big deal to me. Like we're on a journey together. Let's figure it out. But then like there's someone that is in my circle. They, they work with me and, and, and they're at this church and, uh, you know, but they don't answer my emails right away and I just get mad. How can you not answer my email? This is time sensitive. Don't you get it? And, and, and to recognize that, like, why is this provoking such a big reaction? It's not because they didn't get an email back to me in time. I mean, that wasn't helpful necessarily, but, but it's that because it triggers the fears because that's a thing I don't like about myself. And when you do that uh, and, and, and show and embody this thing I don't like about myself, I recognize it, and then it just makes me more mad at you than ever before. And this thing that could have been an opportunity for empathy and connection becomes a thing that makes me uh, just put you down and, and be angry at you. Yeah, I have a friend on Facebook. We went to college together, and um, and he says, uh, and now we don't. He lives a different place. We don't really see each other anymore. But on Facebook, like, he's always saying like really offensive things, and uh, and it's been a struggle to 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 keep with him and to not unfollow him. And I just recognize that part of that is because I'm I'm always so worried that I'm going to say offensive things or, or that I'm going to rub somebody the wrong way. You know, I'm going to mention that I picked my nose, and now none of you will ever be able to forget that about me, ever. And then what that ends up doing is it leads us to, to seeing other people ultimately as objects. Because now, like, like this person, he's no longer a friend of mine that we went through college together, but, but now he's someone who's just kind of cluttering up my feed with offensive things, and, uh, and I'm not seeing him as a well-rounded, fully human person with, with fears and desires. I'm just seeing him as someone that's kind of a pain in the neck to catch up with every week. Or, especially when we start racking up the friends or the Instagram followers, you know, people start becoming a statistic, right? You got 500 friends, 1,000 friends, that's great, but are you really seeing all 1,000 of those people as living, breathing human beings with needs and fears and desires and wants? Or are they just a way to expand your network for business? Or are they just a way to validate yourself because you're not necessarily feeling real confident with yourself, but hey, I got 1,000 people that, that, that follow what I do and they like my pictures, See, it doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing that you see people as objects. It could even be in a, in a supposedly good way. They're like, oh, they're an object that helps me. They're someone I like, I'm glad to have because I know I got this handyman. I, I know that if I'm in trouble, he'll come help me fix something at my house. Like, but that's, he's not a person anymore. He's just that person I, I use when I need something. And so then as I live with these negatives, I, I think it reinforces for me that there really is something here. That is as weird as some of these might sound, uh, as difficult as they might be to put into practice, I think they really do lead to the kind of life-giving connection that we all innately desire. And, and I feel f- more confident in that as well because when I look at some of the more popular television shows of the last few years, I think it's not because of the ostensible reason for the show, like the theme of the show. I think it's because when we look at those shows, we see 
these attributes of the way they connect and we long for it and it's, and it's so intriguing and inspiring to see it play out on television. And I think that's why we like him. Like the show Parenthood, right? I think that show embodies so well the unconditional, non-shaming nature of relationship. I mean, those people go through a lot of junk. I mean, drug addictions and, and pregnancy issues and I mean, like all these terrible things happen with and among them. But you know what? They're family, and they're not going to let shame be a thing that, that makes that family relationship conditional. They're, they're going to they're gonna be family no matter what. It's an unconditional relationship. Or think about this, the, the TV show The Office. You, you know what I finally pieced together about why The Office is so popular? Yes, it's funny. Yes, it's goofy. But, but here's the thing. At the beginning of that show, well, and, and it's the nature, it's obligatory, right? None of them chose their coworkers. Nobody would choose to work with Dwight Schrute ever. It's this obligatory relationship. And yet after nine years where you're not able to get away, where, where you're forced to be in these relationships day after day after day, you see how this office that had been filled with screwballs and losers suddenly is relationships where they are all finding spouses and best friends. And, and, and what used to be obnoxious and irritating is now a lovable quirk. And, and it happened not just within the context of the show, but it happened for those of us watching it. That by the end of it, I, I kind of like Dwight Schrute. Like he's a lovable, quirky weirdo, but, but he's got a heart. And I only ever discovered that because of the obligatory nature of that relationship. I, otherwise, we never would have gotten there if I could have just quit and moved away or if anyone in the show could have done that. Or ultimately, a show that I think is popular for this very reason uh, is The Walking Dead. I don't think it's just because of the zombies that people like that show. But I think that when the apocalypse happens and most everybody becomes a zombie, it's very easy to remember that people are people. Right? Like, like you're put together with this group of survivors and, and yeah, you're forced and, and, and you need them. But like there's zombies, there's people, they're different. And it helps reinforce over and over again that this is what leads to these powerful connections, this is what it takes. And there's a common sense conclusion I think you can come to just from looking at this list, right? If you've bought in, you agree with me that these are the signs of a recharging connection that gives life, great. And so then the next conclusion is to simply say, but you can't just ask for that. You can't just sit back and passively hope that someone's going to come along who doesn't just choose me, who, who has unconditional love, who sees themselves in me, who, who, who cares and values about my needs and fears. You can't just sit back and hope for that to happen. You have to be proactive. You have to actually be the one who says, I'm going to create those dynamics towards others. And if I do that, then they'll respond. And then we'll have this recharging, connecting dynamic that I'd like so much. So if you're just following along tonight, I think that would make sense and, and, and you're with me. But here's now the second conclusion that I draw from this. And I draw this after 38 years of struggling with this very topic. I, I'll be honest with you, I would have much rather preached any of the last two weeks on this series than this one. Uh, community and connecting has always been hard for me. And part of that circumstance, uh, since I was a military kid, there was four years in school where each year for four years I went to a different school in a different country. And you can't make connections that are meaningful and lasting that way. And even when I did finally land somewhere, 
And I was trying to live out these principles. I didn't necessarily have these words for it yet, but I was trying to pour out into others. I was trying to invest in them. I was trying to create an unconditional, safe place for me and others to be. It, it, it always fell short. And here's what I ultimately realized. You can't have this community, you can't receive this community unless you are someone who is doing this to others. But you also can't do this to others unless you've actually experienced this kind of connection yourself. It's a catch-22. You can't get it without doing it, and you can't do it without getting it first. Which meant that for a lot of my 38 years, I lived in a lot of despair. Because I want this. And if you're anything like me, I think you want this too. I think you want unconditional love. I think you want a place where you don't have to live in shame uh, and where people care about your needs and your values. But you can't get it until you have it. And so now what? So if you've been paying attention, you know that this is the part of the sermon where the preacher says, hey, but God loves you. And he died for you. And isn't that great? And it is great. And I spent my whole life growing up and hearing that sermon. But I also heard another piece along with that. What I heard was, God loves you and died for you, even though you're awful. Even though you're terrible. You know, while I was a poor, miserable sinner, God loved me for some reason. And that was really helpful as far as showing me how great God is, because he is great. And he is loving. But it just reinforced that I wasn't actually worthy of this kind of connection from anybody. Because it took someone like God, who's perfect, to actually love me. Because otherwise, why would anyone want that? And then someone asked me a question recently. And they said, Doug, if Jesus were alive right now today, would he like you? Would he want to hang out with you? have a beer with you? And for 30 plus years, my answer to that question would have been no. God loves me because God's awesome. Does God like me? And yet when I look in Genesis 2, and when I look at the gospels that tell the story of Jesus's time on earth, it paints a picture of a God who didn't just love me enough that he'd sacrifice for me on a cross, but that he loved me enough that he wants to actually connect with me here and now. See, when I look at this, I see a Jesus who didn't choose whether to die for me or not. It's not like he went through the list and said, all right, we've got 7.5 billion people. All right, I'll die for those ones, but not those. Like he died for all of us. And from that point on and rose again. And from that point on, he's saying, it's not a choice for God anymore. He doesn't pick and choose who he's going to be in a relationship with. It's all of us. And it is unconditional. He says over and over in his word that there is nothing I could do that would make him stop liking me. And Why? Because he he recognizes himself in me and not in some human way, but because as we learned two weeks ago, he was the one that put his image in me in the first place. And when he looks at me, he sees the very way that he made me to reflect him. And he sees my passions and my hobbies. And he doesn't say, why do you waste your time watching movies or doing all this? Like he's saying, no, I gave you those desires. 
and he recognizes himself in me. And then ultimately what he's promised is that he sees me as a living, breathing human being because he's the one that put that life into me in the first place, into you. That when you were conceived, God was saying, you are a person that I have filled with my spirit. And we're gonna have a baptism after this service. And, And in that moment, God says, this is when I put myself in you and make you a living, breathing person. God doesn't just love me, he likes me. Which means I've had this recharging connection my whole life. And I just never knew it. Because I thought he just was willing to die for me. That's a whole different question. But this thing that took me 30 plus years to figure out, I hope that maybe it can land with you right here this morning. God doesn't just love you. He likes you for all these reasons. And he wants to be connected with you in a deep and powerful way. And if we can accept that truth, then guess what? Those kinds of connections are just gonna start happening to us. Because instead of us trying to manufacture something that's false, instead of us trying to sit back and hope that maybe someday someone will like me for me, we actually have it already and we become that agent of love and depth and life-giving connection to everybody around us. And I hope you believe me that it's something you already have and something that the people around you desperately need. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Dear God, I am so grateful that when I see the picture that you showed us of how you made us in the garden, that you designed us in very specific and amazing ways. And God, that beyond and before all other things, but beyond what other human beings think of me, you have said that you designed me to connect with you. You have filled me with your life-giving connection and you have promised me that that cannot go away. And so Lord, I pray that that truth would sink in deep to everyone sitting here right now. That they would feel in so many ways this recharging connection that you have been desperately pushing out to them their whole lives. And Lord, that they would lean into that, accept it as truth, and let that bring healing to their hearts, their lives, and ultimately their connections with other people. Amen. As we've seen, when you have relationships that are primarily marked by technology, it does ultimately keep them at this shallow, superficial level. But that's not what God offers to us. He offers to us a relationship that is so life-giving, so deep, so profound beyond anything else that we could do. And so I invite you now to sing about that with me for our next song.